0: To take your Bibles and open to the Book of Genesis and Chapter Two as we continue our study here. It's been a great morning, hasn't it? Today we're going to be talking about marriage by design, by God's design. Someone once said that Adam and Eve had an ideal marriage. Adam didn't have to listen about about all the men that uh, she could have married. And Eve didn't have to listen about the way that his mother did everything. Years ago, uh, President Lyndon Johnson quipped, he said, uh, I've learned that only two things are necessary in order to keep one's wife happy. The first is to let her think she's having her own way. And the second is to let her have it. (laughs) One man was overheard telling his friend, my wife... Complains that I never listened to her, or something like that. (laughs) You know, people have been telling jokes about marriage as long as people have been telling jokes. And it's really a good thing uh, to have a sense of humor. It will benefit you well, serve you well in your marriage if you have a good sense of humor, especially to laugh at yourself. But the reality is that in our day, in our generation, The state of marriage is far from a laughing matter. There are many very serious and bad things going on with marriage. The first is just that divorce is common. The most recent statistics and data that I can find says that the divorce rate in the United States is still about double what it was in the 1960s with around 50% of marriages ending in divorce in the United States. Today, the United States ranks number three in the world in the terms of the number of divorces per capita. That The only good news in that is that just a few years ago, about a decade ago, the United States was number one. The only reason, the bad news, uh, the reason, however, that that rate has declined The drop in the divorce rate is not because a higher percentage of marriages are remaining intact, but rather because a larger and growing number of couples are opting out of marriage altogether and choosing simply to live together instead. And that's a second problem with marriage in our culture is it's just simply on the decline. But a third issue with marriage in our day and big problem is that we have seen... In our day, the courts redefine marriage in the face of not only against God's Word, but against over 6,000 years of human history. How desperately we as believers need to dig into the Word of God and hear what the Creator has to say about marriage so that we can rightly answer our culture as to what God says, so that we can carefully instill into the next generations what God says about marriage. God esteems and values marriage highly. John Piper said it well when he said that there is is never been a generation whose view of marriage is high enough. The chasm between the biblical vision of marriage and the human vision is and always has been gargantuan. Two weeks ago, before we took a break last week at our, for our missions weekend, Two weeks ago we were here in the book of Genesis in chapter 2 and verse 24 and we looked at this verse 24 through the lens of family. But today we come back and we revisit chapter 2 verse 24 of Genesis to look at it through the lens of marriage, which is normally how we see it. And, and I think what we'll discover is that again there, this verse is loaded It's a profound verse. Let me read together. I hope you'll follow along as I read. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Incredibly simple, yet marvelously complex. Deeply profound, immensely underappreciated. Hotly contested in our modern world. In this one verse, God, using a wonderful economy of words, sets before us the pattern for marriage. And He establishes the first and most essential institution of human society marriage. Why get married? That was a question I heard asked back when I was a teenager back in the 70s. It's something which, as we said, has become more commonplace and more typical in our day and age where people question, why get married at all? We need to be able to answer that question. Why get married? I see in in this passage three reasons why. It begins with That little word, therefore. Or if you are reading in the New International Version, it it uses the little phrase, for this reason. That's another good translation of that. Therefore, or for this reason. And we should ask, it should cause us to ask, for what reason? What therefore? Why is marriage such a big deal at all? The first answer to that from this text is this, because... God said so. God is speaking. And you, if you read carefully and you read this text, you, you might come back to me and say, well, Pastor, how do we know God is speaking? In fact, some have some have purported here that it's not God speaking at all. This is Moses who is adding a little editorial comment. Of course, we know the reality is if we believe the Bible to be the Word of God, which it is, that it doesn't matter whether it's Moses speaking or Paul speaking or Peter or John. It is, as the Scripture says, holy men of God who speak as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They are speaking the very words of God, the inspired Word of God. And so it is God speaking, speaking through human instruments. But these words are the very words of God. And how do I know that? It's actually not from this text, but I know it from the very lips of Jesus Christ Himself. Over in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is speaking and He's talking about marriage and divorce and He quotes from this text. Jesus says, Matthew 19 verse 4, He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning... By the way, another way we know that, that man didn't evolve after millions and billions of years, Jesus said He created them at the beginning. Just thought I'd throw that out, freebie. He made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see, it's, He says, He created them and said. God is speaking. These are the very words of God. God tells us His plan for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Ultimately, the fundamental issue in any discussion on marriage is not what do we think. What do we think marriage should be? What do we think marriage is? It's not what do they want marriage to be. Ultimately, the issue is what does God say? The reality is if there is no Creator, then there are no unbendable rules. All there are are societal norms, and we are free to ignore them if we choose, or we're free to change them if if we all get together and say, we'll change the norm. We're free to do that if there is no Creator. But if there is a Creator, and there is, and He has spoken, and He has established marriage, then ultimately we are not dealing with questions about marriage. We are dealing with questions about authority. Who sets the rules? Is it God or is it us? So why get married? Because God said so. Secondly, our text and really our whole series here, the theme of our series is by design. And our text lets us know that the reason why to get married is because God designed this therefore or for this reason, as this as the text as this verse opens, sends us back to what came before. And beginning in verse four, we get a as if you've been around the last few weeks, we've understood that beginning in verse four, the text takes us back to um uh to the, the sixth day of creation as God creates Adam and Eve man and woman. In chapter 1 and up to verse 4 of chapter 2, it's an overview of all of creation. Beginning in verse 4, we get a a, a uh, zoomed in picture of the sixth day as God created Adam and Eve, male and female. And what we understand is it's It's saying, for this reason, the fact that God designed us as people, as male and female, He designed us for marriage and marriage for us. Every new car, and I haven't had many of them in my life, but I've had two. Every new car comes with one of these, an owner's manual. This is actually from my newest one and it's thinnest because they expect you to download most of it onto your phone or your iPad. But it still has a little book in the glove box. Some of you who've only had old used cars, like most of mine, never knew that because it wasn't in there when you got it. Why is it there? Because the ones who designed the car, the ones who manufactured it, say, here's the things you need to know. If you're going to get the most out of this thing which you just you know sold your soul to buy, mortgaged your soul, you know, uh, You you better want to take care of it. This is how to get the most of it, how to use it properly, how to care for it. But you're free to take that and bury it in the bottom of your glove box and never open it. And to ignore what is there and you just take your brand new little family sedan and you run over to the U-Haul, you put a trailer hitch on it and you never paid attention to the fact that the owner's manual says you have a towing limit of 2,500 pounds, and you go home and you hook it up to your 30 foot, 10,000 pound travel trailer, and you take it off on your family vacation, and it may work, at least for a while. You can ignore all that the owner's manual says about changing the oil and what type of oil you should use and all the other fluids and all the other preventative and scheduled maintenance that you need to do to your car and it may run fine for a while. You can ignore what the book says about whatever fuel you're supposed to put in your tank. And you can put in whatever is cheapest and whatever is easiest or whatever you feel like today. You know, Unleaded gas, unleaded regular gas, unleaded premium gas, leaded gas, diesel fuel, kerosene, Pour whatever in there. It may run for a while. Sooner or later, there is a price to pay when you ignore what the maker says about the car. If that's true with cars, how much more it is with us. We are creatures of God, and this is the owner's manual. He has given us an owner's manual that tells us what marriage is and how it is to be, how it we are to get the most out of it, and how we are to care for it. We ignore it, God's word at our peril. Why get married? Because God has designed marriage for us, and us for marriage. Thirdly, why get married? Again, the therefore sends us back to what came before. And what came before in verse 18, God said, as He created Adam, and it wasn't a surprise to Him, it's there for our benefit, God says it is not good for the man to be alone. God created marriage for our good. Marriage is good and good for us. God designed and He created us as relational beings, and marriage is he created as a wonderful means of fulfilling that need that we have for relationship. God created marriage for our good. What that means, by the way, is if we destroy or abuse marriage, we ultimately, whether we do it personally or whether we do it as a society, ultimately it is to our detriment. We noted last in our last study That even the secular researchers and the secular sociologists are forced to recognize and to admit and to notice that God's plan for marriage and God's plan for family is beneficial to children and beneficial to society. That when marriages, stable marriages, when they decline in society, that it gives rise to increased childhood poverty, increased poverty overall, childhood poverty especially, child neglect, drug abuse, child abuse, crime, suicide, other social ills when we neglect God's pattern. The fact that God created marriage for our good means many things. There are a couple of things that it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that every, per- every person needs to be married or that a person who is not married Cannot have a full and complete life. We know that, in fact, because Jesus was not married, the Apostle Paul was not married. First Corinthians chapter seven. We won't go there this morning. But you can go read it on your own, and you discover that there that God has gifted some people with singleness, and it's a benefit in for many ways in being able to serve God and do things that married people. Cannot do in in serving God and others, and the reality is that most adults spend some years, if not many or all of their adult years as singles, sometimes by choice, but sometimes not so it's not saying that every person needs to be married or that marriage is the only way to a complete life, nor does it imply that every marriage will meet all or that marriage in general will be all of our needs for companionship, nor that every marriage will be a good and positive experience. What it does mean is that overall, marriage is a gift for our good. It is beneficial and it is vital for families and for mankind as a whole. Let's look at the pattern for marriage. The text tells us here, it lays out for us what marriage looks like, first, it tells us who are the participants, who is it that's involved in marriage, who is it that is to be married? And the answer is very simply: man, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. It is a man and a woman. That was kind of understood in uh, most societies throughout most of human history. It's become a it has become ununderstood <laughs> uh, today. But this sets out the pattern here, and it's very clear. It could not be more clear. sets out the pattern not only for marriage, but for sexual conduct. God designed for sexual relations to be between a man and a woman within the context of a committed marriage. It's established here, and it is developed, it is amplified and explained throughout the rest of the Scriptures. And therefore, homosexuality and adultery and fornication and pedophilia and all kinds of other things that are departures from that pattern, the Bible calls them sin because they fall short of God's design and God's plan. That's what the Scripture says. That is not hateful. That is is simply reality of what God says. So again, the issues of our day, whether it is homosexuality or gender identity or whatever, they are not the real issue. Authority is, does God exist? He does. And does He have the right to tell us how to live? The Bible says very clearly, yes, He does. It shouldn't surprise us, though, that, that our culture struggles to define what marriage is it shouldn't surprise us that our culture struggles to define the boundaries of moral behavior of moral sexuality it, it shouldn't surprise us that our culture struggles even to define gender because they have denied god as creator and they have denied him as lord but for you and me for all of us who are believers In Jesus Christ, as Christians, we are not free to define these things in any other way than what God has said in His Word. The participants in marriage, the Bible says, are a man and a woman. The process of marriage is threefold and it's laid out for us here. And It says, first, it is a man shall leave his father and mother. We talked a couple of weeks ago about this and we said that marriage is for grown-ups. It is for mature, for those who are mature enough and responsible enough and ready enough to assume adult responsibilities, to care for themselves and to care for a spouse. But it's more than that. This leaving, leaving of mother and father implies more. It's it's saying that, well, that there's a difference in allegiance that occurs. Leaving parents really isn't about geography. It's not about moving out of the house, moving out of town or out of state, getting as far away from mom and dad as possible. It's not about severing relationship. It's not saying that you can never live in the, on the same property or even in the same house as your parents. If that's the case, we're in big trouble because we've had parents living in our house for the last 8 years. That's not what it means. What it means is that there's a change when a, when a man and wife come together in marriage that there is a change in allegiance. That when a couple is is married that that things shift, priorities shift. And no longer are are is our primary allegiance, our primary accountability To our parents, it is now to our spouse. Our prime devotion is to the one to whom we are married. God first, then our spouse, and others, children, parents, job, (laughs) hobbies, everything else goes down the, the list. That's the point here of leaving father and mother leaving the priority of that most basic relationship up till the point of marriage and its changing priorities. Secondly, leave father and mother and the passage says, be united to or be joined to or hold fast to, as the ESV says, be united to your wife, your husband. Literally the word there in Hebrew has the the, uh, idea of to cling to or to be welded to or to be glued to. The concept is that of a bond that is inseparable, that is unbreakable, a permanent bond. It also has another thing, as I notice, it is laid out here as it were as a command. Be united, hold fast to, be joined to. It's a command, it's a choice that we need to make to choose to commit. Something that when we enter into marriage, we need to go into it with the idea we're doing this for keeps. There is no divorce. It's not an option on the table. We're going into this permanently. So our determining to unite with someone else. Someone once said that a wedding ring is a piece of jewelry that you wear a small piece that you wear on your finger that cuts off your circulation. See, it's going into marriage with that concept and understanding that this is it. This is this one person. They are now my husband, my wife. This is permanent. And this relationship has priority. That's this concept here. Be united. Again, it's a permanent relationship. It's, it's one where the con, the, uh, we're going into this for keeps. The Bible, in fact, describes it as a covenant, as a contract. You know, the whole purpose of a contract or a covenant is not to go in with good intentions. Yeah, well, I hope we'll we'll do this. I think we'll do this. When you go into a contract, trust me, when you sign a contract, <laughs> they're going to this knowing you're going to do this. We're going to make it so difficult for you not to do this that you will do this. That's the way contracts are made, right? whether you buy a house or a car. So it is in marriage. It's called a covenant. And God takes it very seriously when we break the covenant of marriage. Listen to the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 2. The Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage, covenant, there it is, covenant, contract, has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. God intends for marriage to be something permanent. That we are glued together, that we are united, that we stay united. And one more thing, just by the way, to note in that passage did you notice that all those first three things we've said is something we do? We are joined, we're glued together, we are united, we stay united, but. This passage here says it's something God does. It says, the Lord has made them one. Jesus calls our attention to that. I read a moment ago from Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce and He quotes from Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. You know what the next verse is that He says after that? It's words you know because you've heard it in weddings. Those whom God has joined together, He quotes this passage from Malachi, Let no one separate. Marriage is special. It's valued by God. And when a couple gets married, God, not only do people join themselves together, but God gets involved and joins them together. This faithful commitment of marriage is essential for the flourishing of a family It's within this commitment that we find the security and rest that we need desperately as husbands and wives, as men and women in marriage. That comfort and security that comes from knowing that you're not going to get tossed out the door or neglected simply because we've gotten older and not as attractive as we used to be or we've gotten sick. There's a commitment to stick with this for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health, as most of our vows said. It's in this security, this commitment, that children flourish, finding the security and the comfort that they need knowing that mom and dad are together. It's exactly why the sociologists keep discovering that sure enough, kids do better and families do better when couples stick together. God knows what He's doing here why God says He hates divorce. Because the breaking apart of this relationship destroys lives. It's like two pieces of wood being glued together. You want a good little experiment. Take a couple of pieces of wood. Take some Elmer's wood glue, slather it on there, glue them together, clamp them together, let them sit for 24 hours or so, then take the clamps off, try to take them apart you've never done that before, what you will discover is that the glue does not break apart. The glue holds that wood. What breaks apart is is the wood itself. And pieces of this wood get stuck on that one, and pieces of that one get stuck on that. It's an ugly mess. And he says that's what happens with divorce, and that's why God calls us to com- be committed to marriage. The process of marriage is to leave, to be united, to be glued, to be committed and then, thirdly, our text tells us, and the two become one flesh. Four facets of this becoming one flesh that I want to look at this morning. By the way, someone has said in, that in marriage, when a man and woman become one, the trouble starts when they try to decide which one. <laughs> R, R, R. <laughs> one flesh. Four facets of what it means. The first thing that it means is referring to the physical union, the sexual union. One flesh definitely implies that. We can see that when you go to First Corinthians chapter 6. That, uh, And we're going to talk more about sexuality and intimacy next week as we continue in this verse and moving on to the next verse. One flesh includes sexuality and the sexual union, but it's more than that. One flesh is also something we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about family and it's the product of that sexual union. It's children as literally two come together. The genes of the father and the mother are joined together in one person creating a unique one flesh from two people. But one flesh is even more than that. It is also a continuing process the continual process is throughout married life. Two lives are merged into one. The mingling together of at first it's you know the household goods, you know, it, and it's the the bank accounts, but it's more than that. It's the mingling together of priorities and the mingling together of personalities and of uh, the mingling together of souls and hearts and minds and thinking and and you know on and on. Until they are so intertwined that ultimately it's hard to know where one begins and one ends. In a good marriage, the most important word is ours, not mine or yours. As couples live together for a long time, they begin to act alike. Have you noticed that? And sometimes even begin to look alike. Interesting. Interesting. It's a continuing process. But one more thing. One flesh is also a reality to be considered and be embraced. That when a couple joins together in marriage, they are, doesn't just say become, they are to become one flesh, they, they are one flesh. God joins them together and from that moment on, this is one of the most important, I think, most important realities, most important truths that you can grasp. If you've never grasped this before, you need to listen and hear this and understand it because if you miss this, you've got challenges and problems in your marriage. When you are one flesh as husband and wife, and you are if you're married, then what happens to one happens to the other. There is no me and you, it is us. And whatever is good that happens to us happens to both of us. And whatever is bad that happens to us happens to both of us. And that is significant to understand because everything that you say, everything that you do, everything that you give to your spouse comes back to you. Whether it is good or bad. So anything that I, anything that I give to my wife, that I, any way that I serve her, any way I demonstrate love for her and to her, comes back to me. And it's better for us. On the other hand, everything that we do that is negative, every time we think only of ourselves, live only for ourselves, every time we neglect our spouse, every time we hurt our spouse, we end up starving the relationship, hurting the other person, and because we are one, we end up destroying ourselves. If you've never understood that before, get it. Because it should change the dynamic of how you treat your spouse. Because we are not two, we are one flesh. Lastly, as we conclude this morning, I want to talk about one more wonderful thing. We looked at the purpose for marriage. We looked at the pattern for marriage. I want us to notice the promise for marriage. I began this morning with a quote from John Piper saying that, that uh, one of the great tragedies is that No generation has ever had a high enough view of marriage. I think the reason we treat marriage lightly, the reason we fail to invest as we should in our marriages is because we really have not understood the grand design and the holy calling of what marriage is. It's much bigger than just us. I don't know if you have ever, I imagine you have if you're like me, that you have at some point in time asked the question, maybe every time, I wonder every time I come to communion, I sit there and I go as John Newton did in, in his words this morning where he said, I cannot imagine why God has shown His grace to me. Those weren't his words, but his thought. Why has God cared for us? Why did the almighty God who can do everything, who is the omniscient God who knows everything, who knew before He ever created anything that one day His creatures would sin against Him, rebel against Him, plunging the whole race as Adam and Eve fell into sin. They plunged the whole race into sin. We are all sinners and rebels against Him. All of us then doomed for hell because of our sin. And the only way to rescue us is for God Himself to become one of us, to die on the cross for our sin, that we might be saved by receiving Him. But why would God do all that, knowing what it would cost? I mean, that's one of those things that just makes your brain smoke when you think about it. The answer really gets its first little glimmer of why right here in Genesis 2 where it says, Therefore, for this reason, God establishes marriage at the very beginning of creation as just a little hint of what He is doing. God begins here in the creation of marriage to paint a picture that He slowly unveils through the rest of Scripture. If God here brings Eve, a wife, to Adam. And Adam goes, wow! This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Whoa! And a love story begins. God begins to paint a picture. We come over. There are many passages, but I'll go to just this one. Ephesians chapter 5. As the Apostle Paul quotes this passage here, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul adds the very next verse, This mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And we begin to see what the picture is. And then it gets fully realized when you get over to Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus, the Lamb of God, whom 1 Corinthians chapter 15 calls the second Adam. And Jesus, the second Adam, receives His bride. And the bride is us. And we see the culmination of a love story that is pictured in the first marriage and is to be pictured in every marriage up until the great marriage between Christ and His church. And it's a love story. See, that's the purpose of marriage. It is to be a tangible, earthly picture of God's glorious love for us. His faithful covenant love for a flawed bride that He rescues and redeems by His sacrifice and unites to Him and then to enjoy a relationship with Him in glory forever. That's why marriage matters. That's why the Scripture calls for us to honor marriage That's why Scripture calls for us to be faithful in loving as husbands and wives because in so doing we can reflect God's glory and His grace and His love. And that deserves nothing less than our very best. Let's pray. Father, we understand that the very best marriage is simply a dim reflection of Your great love for us. The reality is that I can guarantee that every married person here this morning, that their marriage has challenges and issues. I pray that they would be encouraged this morning to be committed to being a, the husband and wife that You call them to be. That we all recognize our dependence our, upon You, how we need Your help to do that. None of us is capable. I pray, Father, that you would take broken and flawed people as you are as you not only are prone to do, but you have promised to do. And to remake us and reshape us into things of beauty. Not because we deserve it, but because you are gracious and loving God. I pray you would do that in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who are not married, that desire to be, that, Lord, that You and Your grace would watch over them, prepare them, that You would provide for them and minister to them and show them whatever it is that You have for them, and, Lord, bring good things into their life. Father, there are some folks here this morning who, I hope, have begun to understand, perhaps for the first time, how great is Your love for us. Maybe they have yet to ever put their faith and trust in Christ. And I pray that through all that has been said this morning, they would see not only their need for You, but Your love for them. That they would come to trust You and know You as their Savior. So Father, we ask Your great blessing. I ask Your great blessing upon Your people. Upon each individual and each home and each marriage represented here this morning. Father, may we live faithfully as your people in such a way that we reflect to this world around us your great love and your great grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.